0: Good morning, High Rock and Mars Hill. It's, a, it's an honor to be able to stand here once again and speak the word of God with my background and knowing that God don't look at my background, but God looks at my heart. So I give him glory this morning. So I'm just going to say a little quick word, a prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done. And this day, Father, as we enter into this season of time, knowing that we come before a God that does not know where, that does know, that he knows exactly where we are at. We come before a God who has a plan and a purpose for all of our lives even the children as they continue to come. We come before God that he says, Do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God. And I will strengthen you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He didn't say you, you, you. He said I, who is God. He will strengthen us. And as Pastor Joe says, God knows the hairs that is on our head. So he knows everything about us. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. We don't have to take the worry to bed. All we got to do is surrender it to God. Whatever situation that comes up in our lives, let us us learn. Let us be a people that learn how to take our problem and cast our burdens all upon him because he cares. So I say to the church, in this time, in this season, it's not the building. We are the church. We, the people, are the church of God. God is concerned about each and every one on down to our little children and our babies. So let us say, Lord, give us a heart, a heart to love, a heart to love like you love us, that you don't see us as I'm brown. You don't see Pastor Joe as he calls us different from mine, but you seize our heart. And we want to serve you, God. And we want to serve the people. So, Lord, let your presence, let your spirit, let your holiness fall on us, God, that we will know that we have been touched by the almighty God who is the creator Who is our maker? So let us just love and let us pray. And as we pray, let us not worry. Because the God that we serve, he has everything under control. Everything in his hand. The stars he knows the hairs on our head, he knows. I'm studying losing hair, but guess what? God still knows how much hair Betty got on her head. Amen. So I bless God today. And thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Please stand if you are able today. If you're able to stand, you already standing? Today's scripture comes from Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 14. Please follow along in your own Bibles on uh, on the screen in front, or simply listen as the passage is read aloud. There are also copies of the Bible on the cart in the back. This is the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carry to exile. From Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in numbers there, do not decrease, also seek peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know, I have, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me. You will will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and place where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And this is the word of the Lord. You can be seated in the presence of
1: Good morning, church. Good morning. All right. <laughs> well, Mars Hill Church, uh, High Rock Church, thank you for having me here this morning. Um, it's just, man, what a beautiful, this is the best seat in the house right now. What a beautiful picture um, of God's church here this morning. Um, High Rock, I've known you guys forever. I've known you guys since day one. Um, Pastor Josh was probably the one that, deeply encouraged me to even get involved with our denomination back in the day. Um, And so I've known you guys forever. Mars Hill, you don't know me, but I know you guys. I followed you from the beginning. And uh, I uh, mentioned to my staff that I was going to be meeting with Mars Hill, and my staff lit up. Uh, And so your reputation precedes you. And a lot of it's just the values that you carry and the ways that you guys are uniquely seeking to live that out. And so it's been a deep encouragement uh, to us, for me, over in Cambridge to hear what's going on um, in Boston. Um, And so, man, this is a beautiful picture of the church. Uh, There are two churches gathered here today. I represent a third church, uh, but it's a reminder that there is really only one church. Yeah, Yeah. there's one church with Christ as the head. And uh, black, white, brown, Puerto Rican, Haitian, or Asian. We have Christ in common, and and that is enough. That is enough. Um, so today, what we're going to do here um, yeah, how about this? Turn to your neighbor and say, "One church." One church. One church. One church. <laughs> so today we're going to continue our sermon series. We're going to continue a sermon series that we've been in uh, called "Where Is It Written: Who We Are?" We're looking at the distinctives, uh, the, the, the distinct characteristics of, of Mars Hill and High Rock. Um, and today we're going to look at a distinctive that is, I believe, you know, uh, important to both churches. But also happens to be important to my church as well that I currently pastor. And today I want to talk about what it means to seek justice and to love the city. To seek justice and to love the city. Um, And so today what we're going to do is we're going to actually take a look at two scripture passages. So two for the price of one today, no extra charge. And so we're going to look at uh, Jeremiah 29, which is what we just read. Uh, We're also going to take a look at Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs chapter 11. And so you want to cue up both of those passages for us um, before we get into things. So a couple years ago, uh, my wife had a birthday. And the night before her birthday, um, my kids, I have three young boys, and their cousins were getting the house ready to celebrate and so late at night, the night before my wife's birthday, she went to bed early, and the kids stayed up, and they decorated the house. They went crazy. And as they were decorating the house, they were talking to each other, and they were like, Mom will like, Mom will like this, and Mom loves this, and Mom loves this. And by the time they were done, they looked around the room, and they had trashed the house. <laughs> I mean, the decorations were up, but it was just disgusting. And I remember when they were done, my son looked at the room, and he paused, and he goes, he said three words. He says, Mommy. Likes clean. And they all realized what they needed to do. So then they cleaned up the house, and then everything was good. The next morning, my wife woke up. She had a wonderful birthday, presents, decorations, and a clean house. What my kids knew intuitively was this, that in order to love their mom, they need to understand what's important to her. In this situation, they needed to know what's really important to her, which is cleanliness, a clean house. Today, I want to start by just asking the question, do you know what God desires? Do you know what God wants? As you seek to live your life and revolve your life around our creator, do you know what it is that God desires? Famously, in Isaiah chapter 58, it says this, God says, for day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. But if you know the rest of Isaiah 58, God then says, but You don't really seem to know what matters to me the most, and what matters to God? Well, a lot of things matter to God, but here's one thing, and this is where I want to I want to start us off in Proverbs chapter eleven. So, Proverbs chapter eleven verse one says this: Proverbs chapter eleven verse one says, "The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him." And so, what matters to God? Well, a lot of things matter, but here we find that God cares about justice. Justice. What is justice? Justice is is, is making things right. It's making things right. It's when you look at the world and you're like, this is not the way that it should be. Whenever you say that, you're comparing it to a picture of the way that the world should be. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright who calls, he says, justice is simply putting the world to rights. Justice also entails an awareness There's an awareness that there are systems and structures that are in place that perpetuate brokenness, that perpetuate injustice and things going wrong. When I was in seminary, I had a professor named Jim Wallace. He explained justice to me this way. He said the difference between justice and mercy can be defined this way. Let's say you're sitting by a river, and some of you might have heard different versions of this. You're sitting by a river, and somebody is in the river, and they're drowning. And they go, help! So you dive into the river, and you save that person. That is a work of mercy and compassion. Then another person is drowning, and you dive into the river, and you save them. Then another person says, help, I'm drowning! And you dive in, and you save them. Another person's in the river, help, I'm drowning! You dive in. Every single one of those acts is an act of mercy and compassion. What is justice, then? Justice is asking this question. What is going on with this river? What is going on? Is somebody throwing people into the river upstream? Is there a broken bridge up there? What is going on upstream? Justice is asking that question and going wherever that question takes you. Uh, Let's keep reading Proverbs 11. Uh, When you go upstream, what do you find? Proverbs 11, uh, verse 2, says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. With humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the blameless make their paths straight, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires." Hopes placed in mortals die with them. All the promise of their power comes to nothing. The righteous person is rescued from trouble, trouble, and it falls on the wicked instead. Let's pause there. When you go upstream, what do you find? What you find are systems that prioritize all the wrong things. They prioritize profits over people. They prioritize comfort over necessary reform. They prioritize fear over facts. They prioritize love of self over love of neighbor. There's a misplaced trust that you find when you go upstream in our society. In this passage in Proverbs 11, it specifically points out that we have flipped things. We have valued pride over humility. Right? We find this in verses 2 and 7. We have put faith in ourselves instead of God. We have forgotten that you and I are contingent beings tied to a creator. We believe that we can just go off and do things on our own. We've gotten things flipped. And we have put pride over humility. We've put lies over truth. We find that in verse 3. In verse 4, it tells us that we've put money over everything. Verse 6 tells us that there are evil desires at play, which illuminates for us the fact that there's a diseased and compromised and sinful heart at the core of so much of what's happening in our society. We put our trust in the wrong things. So you could say this, that misplaced trust leads to a disordered society. Misplaced trust leads to a disordered society. You create a society where you value the wrong things and you value things in the wrong direction and you you create a society that values certain people over other types of people. You do something like that and you end up with injustice and disorder. Many years ago, um, my wife and I, uh, we're doing a lot of work in our community um, and doing a lot of outreach uh, to high-risk youth in our neighborhood. And there was one night, um, it was like midnight, and I got this call that one of our guys at the church was in jail. So I showed up at the jail, and I realized, um, I talked to the officers, and they told me that um, this person in jail, he needed a passport or an ID to verify his identification. So I was like, cool, I know where he lives, so I went to his home. I knocked on the door, so I, uh, and I go to the door, and I and I'd go to his parents' I said, hey, your son's in jail. And their response was, yeah, we know, uh, because he goes a lot. And I said, hey, we need a passport. We need an ID or something. So the mom went into the house to go find that identification. I sat on the front steps. And as I sat on the front steps, the dad came out and joined me and sat with me. And he and I just started to make some small talk and started asking me about me and what I was doing. And uh, we started talking about school. And at the time, I, had, I was just finishing up grad school at Harvard. Um, and he said this. He goes, Larry, you seem like you have your life in order. Um, you know, you're about to be married. You know, we, we were, you know I, was, I was engaged at the moment. And, and, and so you're about to be married. You're, you're, you're finishing up at Harvard. Um, you seem like your life is pretty good. He's like, why do you care about my son? Because he goes, I don't care anymore. Why do you care about my son? And I remember I paused and I thought, Yeah, why do I care? You know, I remember I had this moment where I was like, yeah, what am I doing with my life? You know? Like, he's totally right. Like, it's midnight. I'm out here. I'm like, what exactly am I doing with my life? And I got stuck. And thankfully, across the street, my to-be wife was in the car. She had the window down. She could hear the conversation. And she yells out the window. She goes, Jesus! (laughs) And I turn to the dad and I go, oh, Jesus! Jesus! is the reason I love your son. So I'm so grateful for my wife in that moment. But what disturbed me is that, like, I got stuck in that moment. And I started thinking, is my life worth this other kid that keeps getting thrown into prison over and over again? And here's what's going on in my mind, and here's what I need to confess, and I still struggle with this. I believe on some level that my wor- life is worth more than other people. I'll tell you this right now. I struggle with this right now. I believe that my life, because of my position, because of my education, is worth a hundred, a thousand homeless people's lives. A thousand drug addicts' lives. A thousand high-risk youths' lives. A thousand of their lives is worth one of my lives. That's what I believe. That's a lie. It's a lie because in the kingdom of God, everyone is equally created in the image of God. And in the kingdom of God, the math is one-to-one. There's a one-to-one ratio. But I have imbibed our culture, and I somehow believe that I am worth more. And that if I were to disappear from this earth, it would be such a tragedy, because I am worth a thousand of some other person's life. This is what's happening in our society, where you have misplaced trust and you value certain people over other people people and you do this and you perpetuate a broken system I'm going to keep reading in, in Proverbs 11 it says verse 9 with their mouths the godless destroy their neighbors but through knowledge the righteous escape when the righteous prosper the city rejoices when the wicked perish there are shouts of joy in verse 9 we're told that there's a justice can be enacted on an individual level even with words towards our neighbor but in verse 10 justice can be enacted on a larger Systemic level, the entire city. There's some sort of symbiotic relationship between the individual and the city, between this individual and the system that we live in around us. And what does that interplay look like? And this bears a little bit of investigation, right? What does it mean for us to have a relationship with the city? Why is this being highlighted here? And this is where I want to look at our second scripture passage in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29 is one of these passages that really uh, sort of illuminates for us this relationship between the people of God and the city that they live in. Jeremiah 29, um, and we just read it, so let me read it just one more time, um, starting in verse 4. It says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace. And prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. What's happening in Jeremiah? If you don't know this story, the people of God are in captivity. They've been taken away by the Babylonians. And they've been taken away from their home, which is Jerusalem, to a place that is not their home, which is Babylon. So people are being removed forcibly from their homes and from their culture. And they're placed in a completely different context. They are foreigners in a foreign land. And as the people are being displaced, this is the strategy of the people of God. All right, you want to hear it? Here's the strategy. Let's ride this thing out. That's a strategy. The strategy, let's ride this thing out. The general consensus with the people of God when they were taken into exile is that we are only going to be here for a little bit and then God will return us home to Jerusalem. So let's just wait. Let's just ride this thing out. So so what if we don't like Babylon? So what if we don't like the city? So what if we don't like the food or the culture? It doesn't matter because we're going to be out of here soon anyways. Let's ride this thing out. Who cares if I don't like Boston, I don't care, I'm gonna get my degree, I'm gonna get do my thing, I'm moving to New York, I'm moving to California, I'm out of here. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter, because I'm out of here, anyways. So prophets, there are prophets in this society saying this stuff. And they told people that they would be out of there in two years. They said it's only gonna be a couple years, but God here is saying they are prophesying lies. They're prophesying lies. So there's prophesying, somebody say prophesying. And then there's prophet lying, and somebody say prophet lying. So God says, you are, there's a bunch of prophet liars going around right now in your society. You are not there for two years. And and God is saying, you have put your trust in a timeline instead of putting your trust in me. God says, you're not going to be there two years, you're going to be there 70 years, which is indicative of an entire generation. That news is bad news, because if your expectation is two and it's 70, that's bad news. If I told you college is not four years, it's 40 years? (laughs) Not good. So what do you do? What are we supposed to do now if we're going to be there for an entire generation? It's not two years. It's an entire generation. It's going to be foreigners in a foreign land. What do you do? So here in Jeremiah 29, we're told three key things. One is to build houses. And we're told to be rooted where you are. That wherever you are, to be fully present man, how many times have I moved from city to city, especially when I was younger and I didn't even unpack my boxes. And I was like, man, I'm leaving here anyways. I'm only going to unpack my fork, maybe only one fork. I'm going to leave the other forks in the box. I'm just going to wash this fork. I'm not going to unpack this stuff because I'm on the move and I'm going. Here, God is saying, unpack your boxes. Unpack your boxes. Settle down. And he's saying we do this with our spiritual lives as well. Sometimes we jump from place to place, and we're like, I'm not going to get involved in the church. I'm not going to be a member at that church. I'm not going to invest in relationships with people. I'm out of there anywhere. I'm gone in a year, two years, three years, seven years. (laughs) It's hugely problematic. We are habit-forming people. So first, it tells us to build houses and be rooted. Second, we're told to plant gardens. This is challenging, because it means we need to move from a mindset of consumption to cultivation cultivation. We know how to consume things, and we know how to consume cities. When we come into cities, whether you grew up here or whether you're a transplant, we know how to consume the cities around us. We see cities as a means to an end. So many people come into cities or see cities as a job or as a degree, as an opportunity, and that's it. What we are doing when we live our lives this way, we are consuming cities. How many people consume Boston and then they move on to New York? And then they consume New York and then they move on to L.A. And they move L.A. I'm not saying one's better than the other. But you're consuming cities as you go. And when you go to a city, the only thing you know about that city is where to eat, drink, dance, go to the movies. It's the only things you know. It's the only things you know. There are far fewer people going to cities With a mindset of cultivation, with a mindset of saying, hey, what can I cultivate here? And what's hard about that, it means thinking long term about the well being of that city. The third thing is we're told to seek the peace of the city. That word peace is shalom, it means the wholeness and the fullness of the city. And here's what's revolutionary we're told that if you seek the peace of the city, in it you will find your own peace. What does this mean? It means that today if you are struggling, if you find that peace is elusive, maybe the solution is not better friends. Maybe the solution is not more friends. Maybe the solution is not a better job. Maybe the solution is not a better living situation. Maybe that's not what it is. Maybe our peace is elusive because we have not sought the common good. Maybe peace is elusive because we've come in fundamentally into our situations as consumers instead of being people who are wired in thinking about cultivation. This is revolutionary to believe that if you seek the peace and the well-being of the city and the structures itself, that in it you will find your own peace. So let me leave you guys with some kind of, hopefully some practical things um, as we digest all of this. So first thing that I want to kind of like hold on to here as we go is the encouragement for us that justice and loving the city, it begins at the beginning of the day with right worship, a right orientation with God, with our creator. And when we have that right orientation with God, when God is at the center, everything else falls into place, all right? And when God is at the center, then we are also in the proper place, right? We are not on the throne. There's only, one roo- There's only room for one king, and it's already occupied. God's on that throne. So, when we have a proper worship and we have God at the center, it also puts our identity in the proper context as well. And who we are and how we are formed is integral to justice. Tim Keller, who is a a former pastor, uh, says this. He says, I have seen this concern for social justice, but I also see many who do not let their social concern affect their personal lives. It does not influence how they spend money on themselves, how they conduct their careers the way they choose and live in their neighborhoods or whom they seek as friends. Also, many lose enthusiasm for volunteering over time. From their youth culture, they have imbibed not only an emotional resonance for social justice, but also a consumerism that undermines self-denial and delayed gratification. And what is he saying here? He's saying you and I have inherited a cultural definition of justice. Our culture has shaped us in a way and that we have settled for a version of justice that sounds like this. We do justice in a way where we believe that it's okay to dehumanize people in order to try and humanize somebody else. We think that's okay. We think it's okay um, to, 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 to be angry at everything and tear it on everything, but have zero idea what it is that we're for. So we know what we're against, clearly. But what are you exactly for? And we're in the mode of tearing things down, without knowing what it is that we're building. It's like looking at your house and saying, I hate my house, and you destroy it. And you're like, okay. Did you think about where you're going to live? Did you think about what you actually want your house to look like? What are we for as a generation? If you imbibe the culture and the way that we've defined justice, instead we have a culture that's filled with entitlement, anger, and impatience. And then we end up being people that rail at the disorder of the world When we ourselves are disordered on the inside. That's bad math. Turn to your neighbor and say, that's bad math. Henry Nouwen says this. He says, you can either be a wounded healer or you can be an unhealed wounder. If you're an unhealed, oh, oh, here, I'll say it again. We, We can either be wounded healers or you can be an unhealed wounder. If you're an unhealed wounder, this is why in our society we say, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. You can't rail at the disorder of the world when you yourselves are not ordered on the inside. See, the mistake that we've made as a culture is that we believe we can have justice without God. There's this quote by Martin Luther King Jr. He says this. He says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And everybody quotes that. And that that quote makes it sound like the universe will inevitably end up towards justice. It naturally bends. And people use that quote to say, oh yeah, it's going to be human beings who make good choices and then the, the universe will naturally bend towards justice. But here is the fuller quote that no one ever quotes. Here's the, here's the full quote by MLK. He says this. He says, Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ arose and split history into A.D. and B.C., So that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So why is that a completely different quote? Because MLK is saying the universe does not bend naturally. You need something to bend it. (laughs) There is someone bending the universe, and it is Christ who has come in as split AD and BC, and Christ is the one who bends the universe, towards justice. You cannot have justice without someone, without something from the outside coming in and bending us towards that end. You need God in, ter- in, terms t- in order to have justice. You know what's crazy? You need to reinforce this in the church. Even in the church, in my church, people always ask me, at least once a month, pastor, what's the difference between the way the church does justice and this nonprofit? What's the difference? And I'm like, oh my God, well, like you mean, What's the difference? You mean besides the fact that we're the church? That's, what's, I mean, I kind of get the, I understand why people ask. If you're a basketball fan, there's a player named LeBron James. And for many years, he's on terrible teams. And people would say this, when he was on the Cavaliers, people would be like, man, that team was terrible without LeBron James. Without LeBron James, that that team is trash. But I'm like, nonsense. The whole point is that they have LeBron James. That's the whole point. There's no discussion here. And so when you talk about the church, we're like, what's the difference between a church and a nonprofit?" You mean the fact that we have the creator of the universe? You, you mean the fact that we have the alpha and the omega and the one that knows every hair on your head? You mean that? You want to extract that out of the equation and then you want to compare? Go ahead. But that's a nonsense sort of way of thinking of things. The difference between the church and the nonprofit is that we're the church. We're the hands and the feet of Christ. Where God is pleased to dwell. We worship correctly. When we worship correctly, it orders our lives correctly. Mark Labberton is a speaker. He says this. He says, the evidence of this transformative process is that our neighbor becomes ever more vividly and consequentially present and urgent in our lives. So it would be impossible to say we love God and not love our neighbor. Faithful worship inevitably leads us to this and makes this dual reality plain. We need to worship well. Another thing we need to do, we need to look upstream. We need to look upstream. This is challenging for the church. One, looking upstream does mean advocacy. It does mean getting political. Don't freak out. Don't walk out the door. It does mean getting political. What do I mean by this? Let me parse this out. The church should absolutely be political, but it should not be partisan. But it should be political. Now, why do we say this? Because Politics is simply the way your society is ordered. If you stopped at a stoplight today, you're political. If you turned on the water and water flew up, came out of there, you're being political. Do you understand this? Like, politics is simply the way your society is actually structured. Politics is what keeps all those things in place. You know the street lights that we have on out there? If if you're, like, going under and there's, like, like, oh, there's some nice light. You're being political in that moment. And so the church should absolutely be political but not partisan. Again, MLK says this. He says, it may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law can't make a man love me, but it can restrain him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important also. And while the law may not change the hearts of men, it does change the habits of men. And when you change the habits of men, pretty soon the attitudes and the hearts will be changed. We do look upstream. It does mean advocacy. It also means asking the question, why are things the way that they are? And you go wherever that question takes you. Just asking that question. What, what is going on with this river? Why are there people that constantly need to be saved in this river? You're asking the question and going wherever that question takes you. Again, years ago, when my wife and I were doing um, outreach to high-risk youth, we had a ministry where we would go out into the streets of our city between uh, midnight and 4 a.m., three times a week. And what I would do is, I would drive the church van, which was an unmarked white van. And I'd walk around, I'd drive around the neighborhood in an unmarked white van. And time I saw a youth out that late at night, I just assumed something was wrong with their lives. And I would get, tell them to come into my unmarked white van. And they would get in. And it worked because I had other youth with me that would vouch for me. They'd be like, don't run away, it's cool. And we'd all get into the van. And three times a week, we'd go over to, um, to IHOP in Watertown. It was the only thing open late that night uh late on a regular basis and we'd have food and we did this as a regular part of our ministry we did this like four or five years um consistently um and uh as we did this we found out there's just like a lot of violence in our city a lot of violence going on in the city and we started asking the question why is there so much violence and we follow that question and we found out from the people in our city that there's really only six kids that cause all the violence in our city there's six kids that really cause all the ruckus. By the way, this is true in, in, in parts of Boston as well. If you look at certain neighborhoods, you can kind of narrow it down to a specific group of people rather than saying, wow, this entire place has run amok. No, it's really a handful of people that are causing havoc. And so in my city, there were six kids that we had identified. So fast forward, there was one night I got all six of those kids into the van. Took them to IHOP. No one talked to me. We had food. I fed them food, I paid for their food, and at the end of it, they turned to me and they said, who are you? And I said, why would you get in the van with me? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what is wrong with you guys? guys And and you should have asked me that to begin with. And I just said, hey, there's a God who loves you guys, and there's a church that loves you guys. Now, what happened here? With those six kids, two of them um, are currently serving life in prison. Those two, um, out of that, we have started um, a prison ministry and we stay in contact with both of them on a very regular basis. One of those guys wants to be baptized in prison and so we're working on that. Um, And the other one is having a much harder time and he's usually in solitary. Uh, A third person kind of wanders. He's kind of pops in and out. And then the other three of the six are now in the church, are now in the church. When this happened, the crime rate in our specific neighborhood plummeted. Now, I can't take, we can't take, Credit for that. The police did their job. Schools did their job. Very complex systems here. You can't just say one-to-one. However, you can't also say that we didn't have some sort of impact. We literally reached out to the six highest offenders in our neighborhood. Three of them are in the church. One kind of wanders. Two, um, we're still in deep relationship with um, but are serving time. This is what it means in some ways. Just as an example, you just ask the question. You ask the question, Why are things the way that they are? And you want to just follow that question wherever it takes you. Finally, I'll leave you with this. The final thing is to seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of the city. In order to seek the peace of the city, you need to see your city. You need to see your city. I live in Cambridge. When people come to Cambridge, they're like, oh, that's Harvard, MIT. I'm like, yeah, and there's more. There are immigrants here. The homeless are here. The elderly are here. You have no idea. Do you you see my city? Do you see the the people who grew up in this city and are being displaced? Do you understand that gentrification isn't like a great word for everybody in this city? Do you understand the dynamics of what's happening in my city? Do you see the city? So in my church, we we encourage people to read the local newspaper, wherever you're at. And local newspapers, they're not going to win any huge awards or anything. They might have typos. They might have weird stories in them sometimes. But man... Get to know your neighborhoods, wherever you are, whether you're here in Brookline, whether you're someplace else, get to know your city. Get to know the cries of the city. Know what is, I mean, if I said, hey, pray for your city, you're like, what am I praying for? What are the cries of the city? What are the places that we need God's kingdom to move in your city? Who are the leaders in your city? Can you name your leaders in your city? Can you tell me who runs your police department in your city, fire department? Anybody? Can you tell me? Can you tell me the names of anybody you know in your city? And if you can't, you might just want to think about: Am I consuming this city, or am I trying to cultivate something in this city and deeply understand how the city works? How could you not know who your mayor is if you actually cared about your, your city and the well-being of your city? Get to know those leaders. We also need to move also from consumption to cultivation. And it means for so many of us trusting God with our timelines, that's a hard thing to do. In my church, it's a very transient church. So people are always coming in. They're like, yeah, I'm here for two years, and then I'm graduating, and then I'm going back to California, Texas, Chicago, uh, New York. People are only from four places. <laughs> I get my degree, and I'm going back. And my, my, my question to them is always the same. Says who? Says who? Well, well pastor, I'm done with my program, and then I'm going home. Says who? Who have you asked about that? Says who? So if that's your timeline, you've put your trust in a timeline, fine. But says who? Have you asked the Lord? And by the way, my wife and I, we asked the Lord, and that's why we're still here. (laughs) We're both from Southern California. My hobbies are surfing and, and skateboarding. I can't do any of that even out here. I don't even, I'm like, what am I doing here in Boston? And it's because I'm asking the Lord, and I said, Lord, where am I supposed to be? And I was like, man, why did we ask that question? But you come in with a timeline. But man, what would it mean instead to trust God with that timeline? And let's move instead wherever we're at to try and stay rooted and to cultivate something good. And finally, let's develop relationships. Let's develop relationships. In our church, we have this uh, acronym, BSPB, uh, which is Beyond Socially Prescribed Boundaries. What we say in the church is we want to develop relationships, BSPB, Beyond Socially Prescribed Boundaries. It means having relationships with people that are different than you ethnically, different than you education, different than you socioeconomically, different on uh, age-wise, just different. Our society wants to clump us all together, and the kingdom of God does not look like that. We are called to go BSPB. We are called to go beyond socially prescribed boundaries. To see the image of God in everybody. And to understand that everybody that you see, it's a one-to-one ratio. The image of God is equally present in them than it is in you. Therefore, when we do ministry, when we go out, it's no longer, oh, I have everything and they have nothing. It's never that. It's never that. It's a one-to-one ratio. We call this a mutuality in ministry. A mutuality in mission. Understanding That you and I, all of us, are created in the image of God equally. The final relationship for us, the most important relationship for us is this. It's your relationship with God. If you want to be a person of justice, you have to fall in love with the God of justice. The deepest changes in your life come through the context of relationship. Do you understand this? I, I, I pastor a church right now that really loves talking about justice and one of the hardest things for my church is this people consistently will come to me and say oh, pastor you told me i have to do this now i got to get in an unmarked white van now i got to like reach out to youth now i got to do this i can't do any of that stuff and therefore i feel like god doesn't love me therefore i feel less than and what's happened here in churches that talk about justice is that this has become some sort of new legalism it's become the new sort of standard that people feel like they have to live up to Otherwise, God will reject them. And this is nonsense. It is antithetical to the gospel. And what we're saying here is that in order to be a person of justice, we fall in love with the God of justice and we cling to the gospel with everything that we have. In order for us, all of us, to change, you can't simply tell people to change. You can't simply be go and be a person of justice. That doesn't work. Because even if you feel that right now, once you walk out those doors, that feeling will fade. The deepest changes in our lives happen in the context of relationship. This is why people talk like their friends, dress like their friends, sometimes look like their friends. This is why married couples look like each other, dress like each other. My wife and I are really starting to look like each other. But change happens in those deep places. When I met my wife, my wife um, ate no fast food, never. I only ate fast food. Three, four times a week. It, it, it was literally Taco Bell, McDonald's, Burger King, repeat, just every week, every week, every week. And uh, we got married, and my wife was like, "That's gross. Stop eating fast food." And my reply to her was like, "You're not the boss of me. This is what I eat. This is what my family eats. I feel judged. This is fine." my wife would be like, that's disgusting. Stop eating it. And, and we would have these arguments early on in our marriage. And, but after being married many, many years, what happens? I've stopped eating fast food. Now, why? It's not because fast food isn't delicious. It's so good. <laughs> but I stopped eating it because I'm married to somebody who doesn't eat it. The deepest changes in our lives happen not because my wife was like, stop eating that. That didn't work. What worked was just being in relationship with somebody who doesn't Eat fast food, and by the way, my wife she now eats a little bit of fast food because <laughs> she's in relationship with me. Deepest changes happen in the context of relationship. The way to become people at a church of justice is to fall in love with the God of justice, it's to have a relationship with your Lord. And this is where instead of going out and saying, "All right, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z," we can start the way that we began, which is to come into this space. We say there is one God. Jesus is his son. The Holy Spirit resides in us. We are the church. Lord, we love you. Thank you for chasing after me. Thank you for never, never giving up on me. Thank you that we have hope. Thank you that we have a future. Thank you, Lord, that you are the king of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha and Omega. You, thank you, Lord. And we start with that right worship. And we fall in love with our creator over and over and over again. And as we do so, we are then conformed into the likeness of our maker let me close this in a word of prayer Lord we thank you that you are good and we thank you that even when we talk about heavy topics challenging topics we're also reminded Lord that you remind us that you come to us and you replace our heavy yoke with a light yoke There is joy set out in front of us. And ultimately, for those of us who are in Christ, we run this race backwards. Because our future has been secured. Because we know where things end up. We are all headed home. We are all going to be with you, Lord. And so we can live this life differently. With different values. In love with you. Seeking the love of our neighbor and the peace of the city around us. So Lord, this morning we pray that we would fall in love with you over and over and over again. We pray this in your name. Amen.